there's statements in here such as his commandments are not burdensome that are a reminder to us that this is not uh, an issue of, uh, of obligation but of love. That this is an issue of, of uh, our hearts and, and our minds collectively working together. But notice as this emphasis of belief continues in verse 4, everyone who has been born of God has overcome the world and this is the victory our faith. That emphasis on, on faith, on belief is here. Who is it, verse 5, that overcomes the world except the one who believes? And if you get down to verses 6 through 12, which have some complicated statements in them, they reference testimony. That our faith is not built on, on um, feeble evidence, but on adequate, on abundant evidence. And while we can discuss at length what the spirit and the water and the blood of verse 8 are, the one thing we know is that God has given us plenty of testimony, particularly through his word, to confirm the faith that we possess. And that te- look at verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The circle comes back around to the concept of eternal life. And the whole theme of the book of uh, 1 John that we're going to hit on in just a minute a little bit more is this idea of knowing that you are in possession of that eternal life. One of the key elements of that is having the correct belief that John references here in the early part, a belief built on the testimony of God that leads to this eternal life. So let's pick up there. Ben? So we're going to find out in the, next, in the last verses of chapter 5 uh, some of the most rich uh, verbiage and some of the most thought-provoking things of the whole book John saves for last, at least in my opinion, as he tries to make his final case, his final argument to his readers. And we're going to start in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. So as Kyle was alluding to, verse 13 is our overall, John's overall purpose statement of the book. Why he wrote this book was so that they might know that they had eternal life. And there's more thoughts within these few verses, but the first question I want to ask uh, the the round table tonight is, how does the writing of 1 John, how does 1 John, the book, help us know whether or not we have salvation? How did it help the original audience know what different things throughout the book helps the audience know whether or not they have salvation. In thinking about the original audience and kind of, you know, what, what we've been talking about, the, the main problem they're trying, they're combating right now, this idea of Gnosticism, this thought that Christ either, A, didn't come in fleshly form fully, or at some point the ungodly aspect of him left him, and they were wrestling at what point Christ was fully spiritual or human at the same time. With that, I think the the confidence that John is, inspire, is instilling in them, we see in chapter 1 the, the tangible as- aspects of 
what we've seen with our eyes, we have looked, we have touched with our own hands. Um, so we have that, and then recently in this past chapter, or this, this chapter we're in now, verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, not with the water only, but with the water with the blood. And so we, ha- we are kind of boiling down to what I think of one of the things that gives assurance in salvation is some of the tangible aspects, the core foundations about A, Christ, and then the other aspect is when it comes down to if I'm going to abide in God, if I'm going to, what means I'm following His commandments, what does that mean? The end of the day, what does it mean to abide in God? What is it, what, what's the main commandment that I need to follow? And if, if you've been listening in, or if you've ever read book of the, the book of 1 John, then you know that it's all centered around love. And so I think that's one of the things that when he, when he says, these things I have written to you so you may believe, so that you may know that you have eternal life, he's given them confidence in the tangible aspects, and he's also boiled down what their faith means and what the cornerstone of what their actions should be built on. To me, I think all throughout the book we see different markers of whether or not you are in the faith. Whether or not you are uh, a child of God, whether or not you are a Christian, and throughout the whole book, time and time again, John sets the standard, he sets the expectation of what children of God are to be doing. And obviously, our response to that is to ask whether or not we are doing that. All the way back in chapter 1, he talks about walking in the light, as he is in the light. Well, obviously, that's what Christians do, and therefore, if I am walking in the light, as he is in the light, then I'm a Christian. However, if I'm not walking in the light, as he is in the light, then I'm not. And the text continues all throughout each and every chapter uh, whether or not we are Christians, whether or not we love the world or the things in the world, or if we love the Father, chapter 2, whether we are abiding in the truth, chapter 2, whether we are abiding in Him, chapter 3, whether we abide in the love of God, chapter 4. In chapter 5, it continues this same thought of whether or not we meet the mark. And so at the end of chapter 5, towards the end of chapter 5, rather, we see John saying, I have written these things to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. All these things that I have written to you are your marks, are the things you to be aspiring to. And if you are aspiring to those things, if you are trying to abide in Him, abide in His Word, abide in the truth, then you can know that you have salvation. But it's also this challenge to those who aren't meeting these marks. And it's a challenge to us today if we aren't meeting these standards. That we need to start meeting those standards. Because if we aren't, we can't know that we have eternal life. And John wrote this so that we might be able to know that we have eternal life, verse 13, and continue to believe in the Son of God who gives that life. Y'all have any thoughts about this question? What's interesting to me is that in the, the, the marks that you talk about, that all throughout this book you can find these moments where John is saying, hey, here's how you can know. This, if, if you're doing this, this is how you know that you have eternal life. In the specific context of verse 14, this is what's fascinating to me. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, it's very easy to go, oh, so he's saying if we pray, then that's the mark of being a Christian. Well, to some degree, but even an unbeliever can pray. 
really the mark of a Christian here in verse 14 is praying according to his will. Because think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What, what was his ultimate prayer? Well, he was asking God to not have to go to the cross. But his ultimate prayer was, your will be done. And, and so I feel like here, particularly in the context of chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, what John is saying is that here's the mark of whether or not you are, are truly in Christ, whether or not you are, are truly uh, uh, born of God, whether or not you are in the light, all those things. Here's how you can know. When you speak to God, is it always your goal to seek His will? in all things that you request. I've kind of emphasized that a lot in the sermons recently as we've talked about the life of Elijah because his life is so prayer-filled and it's just natural as we talk about prayer to emphasize the need to um, pray for God's will to be done. But right here in John chapter 13, verse 14, I understand him as saying that's going to be an identification mark like Ben's talking about of, of whether or not you have eternal life. And it's going to be whether or not your prayers are always asking for His will to be done. Um, what's fascinating about this uh, book uh, of First John is that um, it makes our salvation a feasible thing, tangible thing, that we can check ourselves very easily if we are really saved, and if we are in the salvation. Uh, so I will uh, pick up two verses. For example, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So, Salvation is a spiritual thing, and it is in spiritual realm. Its judgment is by God, and we cannot be 100% sure if we are saved, if we are doing right toward the salvation. But if we check ourselves, if we really love our brothers as ourselves, if we love our neighbors as ourselves, then we can check. We can have confidence if we are really saved or not. Because uh, verse 24 says, it is the spirit that God ha has given us. I mean, the love is the spirit that we have to have uh, who are saved by God's love and, you know, Jesus' sacrifice, which uh, represents God's love. So we, if we think we are saved by God's love through Jesus' sacrifice, uh, that, it, that is the symbol of God's love and Jesus' love, then we ought to love as, as he loved us. So the spirit is our life, and the, the nature of the spirit that we have to have as our life is love. So as we have love in our heart and in our mind and by which we are living, then we can have confidence that we are saved. And also one of the verse is chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 
God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in us. You know, we need to remember the purpose of this book, the first John. And in chapter 1, verse 7 says that, I write these things to things that you may have fellowship with us. So abiding together with God, with Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit. So that's the fellowship. But here in this verse, we can know that if we have the love that Jesus showed to us, God showed to us through Jesus, then we are abiding in him, and it, said, it means that we are saved. So I believe the book of 1 John uh, gives us the, the evidence and sure evidence by which we can know that we are truly saved, and which is love. And it's amazing as we look at the book of 1 John that these same marks, these same different things that he says of followers of God all those years ago. Somebody's speaking. Oh, all right. So all those different things that he lists throughout the book of 1 John, all those years ago applies to us tonight the same way it applied to them. I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't, isn't it amazing that the same assurance and the same uh, uh, knowledge of, of knowing that they had eternal life, the same things that told them they had eternal life, tells us we have eternal life. And I think that's the beauty of the Word of God. It's the beauty of the Gospel, the good news that applies to us all, regardless of who we are, regardless of what our background is, regardless of what our past is, or what we've been through, or what we've done, or what we've transgressed, or however we've failed, all of us can know we have the same salvation because of these same different things that they knew back then. And so the next question I have about this text for us tonight to think about is how essential is it for us to have the assurance of our salvation? Um, how, how important is it for us tonight, for anyone listening or here tonight, to walk out of this room this building or wherever you might be, knowing whether or not you're saved, how essential, how fundamental, how important is that for the, for the life of a Christian? I think it's pretty imperative. You know, if, if you're not confident in something, you may, you may never go all in on it. My first car was a lemon, and I was not confident it would make it across town. So I really didn't push that limit. You know, I wasn't confident in, in that assurance that it would take care of me, it would get me to point A, from point A to point B. So I never pushed that. And if I'm not confident in my assurance with Christ, then I may never go all in when it comes to my faith. Because in the, the day, well, I'm not really sure, you know, if I am saved or not saved. And I think that also could breed, that could breed a, a works-based salvation that, okay, if I'm doubting it, then maybe, I, maybe I'm not doing enough. And so maybe not being confident in our salvation puts too much of the salvation in our hands and not in the confidence that this is something God has given me that I've accepted through obeying him. So I think there's a couple, just a couple first, you know, first thoughts. One, it may hold us back from being all in in our faith. And two, it might create a works-based, well, if I, I'm doubtful, so maybe I just need to do more good things to feel more confident in this salvation. 
You know, you ask the age-old question, uh, do you believe that you're saved or lost? And someone who's been in the church their whole life will respond, well, I hope so. You know, I, I, I know where that's coming from. I, I believe I know where that's coming from. It's coming from a sense of humility, uh, a sense of, of not wanting to say that I deserve salvation or, or I have earned my salvation, so yes, I'm going to heaven. People want to respond, well, I sure hope so. Well, that answer, honestly, when you read the book of 1 John, just isn't enough. Uh, the book of 1 John tells us that you can know whether or not you have salvation. It's not good enough to say, I hope so. Uh, it's, 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 uh, and I know where that's coming from, but when we talk about Jesus' blood, I, I think the points Jay made is absolutely correct, but I think it's also... Uh, a little bit like we're slapping Jesus' sacrifice in the face for us to not know whether we have salvation. It's like we are, are doubting the power of the cross, the power of His blood, the, the power of His sacrifice. When we say, I don't know if I'm saved or not, it's like we're doubting the sacrifice of Jesus, who the chapter 1 says is able to, but he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all sin. That if we are walking in the light as he is in life, as he is in the light, he's faithful and just, forgives our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we live a life that knowing, knowing that Jesus has washed our sins away, but living as if we're still lost, then we're not accepting the sacrifice of Jesus. We're not understanding what Jesus and the power of uh, of that sacrifice gives us. John is, is trying to stop that mindset that even we today still have. The challenge of having faith in our salvation. You know, how many times do we sing the song? I think it's number 71 in the book. Blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, right? And we sit there and sing that and we don't really believe Jesus is ours sometimes. We still question. We still ask the question, I don't know if I'm saved or not. And that's simply not what Jesus died for. Jesus didn't die for us to be confused. Jesus didn't sacrifice his life, come down from heaven, live the life he lived, yet without sin, died on the cross, raised from the dead for us to sit there, sit here tonight or wherever you might be and say, I don't know. God came in the flesh to take away that doubt. And that's what I think John is, is challenging these people. He's challenging us tonight to stop that mindset. To have faith in our salvation which we know we can have, according to verse 13. Y'all have thoughts on this? You know, when we th think about confidence, and we, we think about that kind of terminology, I think another term we need to throw out there is certainty. Because if you're uncertain about something, you're more cautious with it, you're more careful with it. Let's say, I like the use of a car as a metaphor so if you're leaving here tonight and you're uncertain that you have enough fuel in your car to get home, what are you going to do? You're likely going to stop at a gas station and fill up. 
because you really don't want to be stranded on the side of the road um, with no fuel. So we operate in this life with, uh, with this degree of certainty. We, we, we want to know for sure that this, we've got this lined up or that lined up. You want to, um, now some of us don't do that with our bank accounts. We'll pay bills and be uncertain of whether or not there's enough money in there to fund it. But that's not good practice. What I'm trying to lead to is this. Ben's asking the question of how important is it for us to be um, certain of our salvation. Well, if, if we don't want to l- drive with an uncertain vehicle, why would we want to be uncertain about our final destination? Why would you want to spend any moment of your life uncertain about whether or not you'll be condemned to hell for all eternity? When you think about the, the ramifications of salvation, when you think about um, the, the, the vast difference that Scripture uh, states between heaven and hell, if you're not certain, then aren't you, in a sense, gambling your soul? What is it that Jesus said, uh, what, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Isn't it of such important value, such significance, that you wouldn't even risk anything? Isn't that why we purchase insurance to reduce risk? And your soul is way more valuable than your home, your automobile, your assets, or anything. Because it has uh, eternal value to it. So why put it at risk? So as we address this issue of uh, the assurance of our salvation, thanks be to God that he's given us a means to have that assurance because far too many of us live with this, this mindset of uncertainty. And yet there is a means to be certain. The Apostle Paul was certain. And so when he's writing in the book of Philippians, uh, nearing with the assumption that his life could come to an end, he says it'll be far better for me to leave here and depart to be with Christ. So he, he, he knew where he would go. He was certain of where he would go. He, was, he had confidence in his salvation. If he can, so can we. And for me, the, the issue is you don't want to be at risk. You want to be certain of your salvation. And that's why this is important to talk about. Um, the confidence should be rational. I mean, confidence can be irrational without any, you know, uh, any uh, evidence or any, um, any ration, rations, rationals, rational? Rational? Rational. Oh, rationals, I'm sorry. You're good. Yeah, rationals, okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's like uh, a student. You know, I was a student, and I, I, you know, when the teacher set a day for a test, I prepared the test for the test very hardly. And you know, uh, especially when you know, at Fred Hardman, Dr. Gilmore, his exam was so complicated and so uh, you know thorough and so uh, difficult. So I had to memorize everything. I mean, so uh, to get A, you know, to to keep my scholarship. So after having prepared so thoroughly for the test, I could be confident. But what if I didn't do anything 
but I feel, oh, I'm confident that I could do the test very well. It's irrational, you know. It may happen, uh, I mean, the good grade may happen uh, externally, but it is not guaranteed. But even though we do our best to prepare for the test, it doesn't guarantee A, but however, that's what we can do. That's the best that we can do to prepare the test. And we can be pretty sure that we can get the you know, uh, good grade. So First John, the value of the First John, not only First John, but other, you know, the words of God, is that the books are giving us the way that we can, we can prepare for the salvation. We can, uh, you know, get ourselves be prepared for what we want going into heaven. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, you know, one another as Jesus loved us. And, you know, uh, be hospitable to, you know, strangers and study the word of God. And everything is in it. And as we faithfully and diligently follow the commandments in the book of the, the word of you know, word of God, then we can be pretty sure. We can n- not others, but between God and me, I can pretty, uh, I can be pretty sure that you know God, I am doing my best, and I can be confident that I am doing right. And I and I think that gives us freedom and relief from the. Uh, fear of going into hell, but from the fear of getting the, you know, unrighteous judgment. So that, we have to be rational, and we have to follow the word of God for us to have the confidence. And the, this book gives us the way that we, have, we can be confident about our salvation. So next up, in verses 16 and 17, we see a very complicating passage, uh, at first glance, it's very difficult for us to understand what's trying to be said. Perhaps the most difficult part of 1 John, the book in its entirety, is the next two verses. It says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. And so the question being tonight, well, what sin doesn't lead to death? Uh, I thought all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3 and verse 23. And because of that, Romans 6 and verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. The payment for that sin is death. So what kind of sin does not lead to death? What is John trying to say here? And what is this business about if your brother is sinning a sin that doesn't lead to death, you may ask. God will give him life. But if he is sinning a sin that leads to death, I do not say he should ask about that. What, what, what's going on here, John? And to do that, I'm going to ask Kyle to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I don't know that I have all the answers to this. One thing I want to point out is that John does not, in his letter, assume...
one thing we should acknowledge up front, if you go back to chapter 1, particularly verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, or, or 9 and 10, I should say, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, um, in verse 2, uh, or verse 1, He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in John's understanding, of sin, he's not claiming here that there's a sin you can't be forgiven for. He's not equating this to the what we often refer to as the unpardonable sin. Uh, th that's These two aren't one and the same. And, and so we need to acknowledge that. John does believe sin can be uh, forgiven in general. Uh, there's a few different ways in which I've seen this uh, relationship between a sin that does not lead to death and a sin that does lead to death uh, explain. One such explanation uh, has, comes from the Old Testament, whereas in the Old Testament and in Judaism, there was a, a, a well-recognized difference between two kinds of sin. There was the unconscious sin, the, the, the sin that you unwittingly do, and then there was the conscious sin. And the unconscious sins were uh, atoned for every year on the Day of Atonement. When the, the, the sins of the people, whether they knew they committed them or not, were placed on that goat that was sent out of the land and into the wilderness as a scapegoat. If you knowingly sinned, the expectation was that you would go to the temple and you would make the appropriate sacrifices. And of course, the blood of bulls and goats were not capable of eternally cleansing people of their sins, but you had that distinction. Conscious sins were dealt with on an individual basis. Unconscious sins were kind of dealt with on a congregational, annual basis. Well, of course, Christ has come, and He has died once and for all, addressing all sins in that fashion. But some believe that maybe that uh, has a bearing on what John is talking about here. Now, if you were to go to the Apologetics Press website, they have an article about the unpardonable sin, about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, written by Kyle Butt. And he has a little insertion in there where he addresses also this subject matter about uh, the sin that does not lead to death and the sin that does lead to death. And he, here's what he says. He says, apparently, the sin unto death in 1 John is not a specific sin, for which it is impossible to receive forgiveness, but rather is any sin for which a person will not take the proper steps demanded by God to receive the forgiveness available. And, and so uh, the way that this, uh, the way that Kyle is, is saying this is that the sin that leads to death, it's not so much a specific sin, a category or a, a specific wrongdoing, but it's the, the attitude or mindset of the one who sins who is not repenting of that. It's the impenitence that's at issue. And so that's another way to look at this passage, that the sin that leads to death is any sin that someone commits that has no intention of repenting for it. Whereas the sin that does not lead to death is, is any sin that one commits that is followed up by repentance. Because it is in repentance that death is avoided, you could say. So, those are a couple of ways I've seen this um, category of sin dealt with in my studies.
So when I look at the text and I think about what this could possibly mean, I think I have to go back to the original context of the book with the problem we've talked about each and every week, the Gnosticism that was rampant throughout uh, the regions, throughout all where these churches were, there were these Gnostics who did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. And here we have John throughout the entire book. Well, chapter 5, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So when we think about when Christians sin, what do we have? When Christians sin, we have atonement. We have forgiveness. We have redemption. We have salvation through the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus cleanses us like the windshield wipers we talked about back in our first study of of chapter 1, right? It cleanses it as soon as it hits the glass. What do non-Christians have? They have no sacrifice. They have no blood. They have no atonement. They have no redemption. They have uh, no assurance like we just talked about. They, they don't have that. And so when we think about this, that could be one of the things I was reading is that could be what John is referring to. These people who don't have Jesus, that's the sin that leads to utter death because they don't have atonement. But the sin that Christians commit when you ask of God, for instance, you see your brother, you see your sister in sin, you ask God to help them, God can give them life. It says in verse 16, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life. Most translations says, and God will give him life. So when we think about this, we understand God is able to give life to who? Those who are in Christ. But when it comes to those who are not in Christ, who simply don't even believe Christ was the Son of God, like the Gnostics, there is no sacrifice, there is no way for God to give them life because they don't have His Son. So perhaps that's, that's an answer if you combine both of these thoughts together for what John is trying to say. If there's no thoughts, we'll go on to the rest of oh. the chapter. You got something, Mingu? Uh, yeah, uh uh, Kyle uh, mentioned the blasphemy against, against the Holy Spirit in uh, Matthew chapter thir- uh, 12. Uh, another sin uh, that we can think about uh, as the one that you know, John may be referring to is the sin uh, the book of Hebrews is talking about. Uh, chapter 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberate, deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So if we was a true Christian, but betrayed God and left the faith, then that's a sin that is not Forgivable. I mean, that that's that they cannot they can be forgiven again. So probably that is another another sin uh, that probably uh, John is referring to. And also another sin that we can uh, know very easily that cannot be forgiven is the suicide. If one suicides is a sin, 
And because the person is dead, there is no hope at all about him, about his salvation. I mean, I mean salvation. So that is another sin that, uh, you know, nobody can save or nobody can pray for. When we think about that specifically, we have to understand that God is the ultimate judge and he knows uh, what was in the heart, what was in the mind, what was going on with that individual uh, when we don't, you know, and if something, someone has the inability to make a rational decision due to things going on in their brain they can't control, obviously God's going to yep. be the judge. God's going to be the one who knows what to do in that situation, and that's why we, we love the fact that we're not the judge. And uh, God knows all, and God is faithful and so that's a very important thing for us to point out when we think about this text. Let's go ahead and finish the rest of the book of 1 John, beginning in verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. So as we look at the last four verses of the book of 1 John, it's interesting, the first three of those four start out, at least in my translation, with, we know, we know, we know. And as we're thinking tonight, especially about assurance and certainty and different things that John is trying to point out, it's interesting how he ends with these things that we know for certain, these things that we can have assurance of. So as we look at these three, especially in verses 18, 19, and 20, what are some thoughts that come to you with these three verses? Of course, in verse 18, I think it's important to note the... Uh statement uh, about does not keep on sinning. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That statement is not saying that uh, once you become a Christian, you will never sin again. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that if you are a Christian, you don't make a habit, a practice of continuing in sin. That you, uh, you understand that as a follower of God, you must stop sinning. You understand the concept of repentance. And so uh, when we look at this terminology, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. It means that as Christians, we understand that we're not going to persist, that, that, we're, that the, we're going to do our best. We're going to make every effort we can to cease sinning, to, to not uh, continue to produce it. So I, I think that's worth pointing out in verse 18 in particular. I also think in verse um, 18, it's also interesting to note that there is this promise of, of God's protection from the evil one. Uh, did you notice that? Oftentimes, what I find fascinating here about verse 18 and 19 is oftentimes we, we overemphasize Satan. And what I mean by that is we, we attribute more power to him than he actually has. And... But at the same time, oftentimes we underestimate Satan. And we think, oh, he, 
he can't really affect us. And what verses 18 and 19 do here is, is they tell us to strike a balance. Understand that there is a level of protection that God provides. Maybe the protection is simply a, a callback to like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where you have a way of escape from every temptation that is thrown at you. That's divine protection in and of itself. And, but then you have verse 19 coupled with that saying, hey, this whole sphere of the universe that we live in, this world in which we exist, yeah, it's under the power of Satan. It's not under the control. God is ultimately in control, but Satan's influence does abide here. And so you're going to encounter his influence in a variety of ways. So verses 18 and 19 is striking a balance. Don't overemphasize Satan, but don't underestimate him either. You know, very simply, I just feel like, obviously, this is, the, this is John wrapping up his letter here, and he's drawing a line in the sand. This is what we can know. This is where we are. This is what the world is. This is what we can rely on. And so uh, I think this is, this, is, this is his last effort to build in this just, you know, core confidence that this, this congregation, these, these, these Christians from around this area could hold on to. And I think it's important to point out in verse 20 that he, he throws in this comment. We know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And so I just love this idea that John throws in, he puts in this comment, we do have the power to understand him. We do have what it takes. We have the wisdom. We have the knowledge. We have the evidence. We have everything we need in our hands and in, and in front of us to make an informed decision on who Christ is and what he has done. Whereas I think this world now, you know, since absolute truth is going out of the window a little bit, I think in this world, well, we, can't, you know, we can't really know. There's so much to debate from, and how can we truly rely on? Well, John tells us here that he has given us understanding so that we may know him. We've got everything we've got, we need here in our hands and in front of us. So, you know, in line with what Jay, Brother Jay said, you know, because we know what we should know through the Bible. So if we go beyond that, it's, uh, I mean, we, we may worship idol. You know, uh, sometimes I mean, some people create their own God, construct their own God, their own Jesus, and their own, you know, Bible, and worships God in their will, according to what they want, but it is not what we have to, I mean, uh, what, what is, uh, that is not what the Word of God teaches us. We have to believe in God. The Bible teaches us who He is, and we have to believe in Jesus. The Bible teaches who He is, and we have to worship God according to what the Bible teaches us to do. So if we go beyond that, or if we do something else, then it is uh, idol worship. Verse 20 really sticks out to me as we think about the context, again, that John is dealing with. It is one last challenge. It is one last correction. It is one last comment. John has to say 
to all the Gnostics out there who do not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He says blatantly, we know that the Son of God came. He said at the beginning of the book, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have handled with our own hands, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? He's ending the book with the same thought, the Son of God has come, we know him who is true, we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. And as if that wasn't enough, what does verse 20 end with? This is the true God and eternal life. For anyone who thought Jesus was not God, there is no question to be said about what John is saying right here. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. You look back at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, Isaiah said of Jesus, mighty God, counselor, all the different names he uses for Jesus. Way back in Isaiah, Isaiah said God when referring to the Messiah. Here John yet again is saying Jesus is the true God and eternal life. He is the Son of God and He came. What a powerful thought to conclude his, his book with. And because of Jesus being God, because He is God in the flesh, because He has given us an understanding, because He is true and we are in Him is true, little children... Keep yourself from idols. Basically, keep yourself from anything else that would tell you otherwise. Keep yourself from anything else that would keep you from understanding who your God is. And that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. What a challenging way to end this book. What a convicting way to end this book as John ends it in chapter 5. And with that, I just want to ask, what are some, maybe one takeaway, one major takeaway, the, the, the most important thing that you got out of your study of 1 John, uh, how does this book help you each day in your walk with Christ? Mingu? Love. You know, love is the way that we can be saved. We can have the confidence that we are saved. And love is the way that we can convert others who don't believe God to believe God. You know, love is the way. So the book of the first John is the uh, best elaboration of the first commandment of Jesus. Love one another as, you, as I loved you. So that, that's what I learned and that's what I give. This is redundant, but for me it's you can be confident in your salvation. That's my big takeaway because there are so many statements about how you can know that. All, all the marks we talked about earlier, that's my big takeaway from 1 John. In fact, if I were to do a, a sermon series on 1 John, it would simply be called Confidence. Hey, in a year or two, you might see that come around. <laughs> yeah, to me, uh, it's, it's a challenge um, more than anything else for me to ask myself, do I meet the marks? Am I walking in the light? Am I abiding in Him? Am I abiding in the truth? Am I loving in word and in thought or in deed and in truth, as He said in the book? Am I, am I loving my brothers and sisters or am I secretly despising them, hating them? Am I 
doing the things that John says, this is how you know you have salvation. And so as we look at the book, as I looked at the book, I constantly asked myself, you know, it's easy for us to teach about this and to preach about this and to uh, know the things that we're saying, but it's a different thing to ask yourself of those things. Am I doing this? I think this is one of the most uh, powerfully written books in the New Testament, but it's also one of the most practically challenging to each and every individual life. So that's what I get. I get a challenge. I get a call uh, to ask myself the question, do I know my salvation? Do I believe in the salvation that I claim? Do I believe in the blood of Jesus that I preach? And do I, am I able to sleep at night? Am I able to live my life? And that's exactly why John wrote this book. So walking away, I, I think I can say yes. I know I can say yes. And John wouldn't have it any other way. Jesus' sacrifice wouldn't have it any other way. Very quickly, mine would simply be going back to the cornerstone of this book, the idea of love. We all know, you know, God has shown us this amazing amount of love, love that we, bear, we cannot understand. A gift, a love that I can never reciprocate, but how I respond to his love is by loving the people around me. If I want to see how much I love God, then I need to look at how much I love people around me. So I think that's my biggest takeaway is God has loved me, and the proper response for that, and the proper the way to gauge how much I love him is to simply say, well, how much do I love my brother here, my sister there, and in this situation, and that situation, in that situation. So tonight, as, as we close, I, I want... All of us probably want to extend this uh, invitation, not an invitation song, but the invitation of Jesus, that if you read this book and you, and you look at your life and you look at your soul, you look at the state you're in and you realize that you don't have certainty, that you don't meet the mark, there's no reason for you to leave tonight without talking to someone about that. And I hope that you'll do just that. Next week, we're going to start a new series of roundtable sermons where each of us are going to take a different week and preach a lesson uh, in, the, in the month of August. And we hope that you're looking forward to that and see you then. Jay, will you close out in prayer? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for tonight and the opportunity that we had, Lord, to spend this much time in your word. Lord, thank you for the, your wisdom and giving us, giving us your word, Lord, that we don't have to guess in what we have to do. We don't have to look around and what it means, Lord, to be a brother and sister to each other, Lord, but you have given us clear insight on what you expect from us, Lord. Help us to cling to it. Help us to hold on to your word, Lord. Thank you for this time that we've been able to uh, specifically study the book of First John and the wisdom that you displayed, Lord, through that and the, the simple concepts of love and confidence that mean so much, Lord, in our Christian walk. Help us to apply the principles that we've discussed. Help us to apply the principles, Lord, that you've laid down into our life, Lord, that we can walk a, a walk closer to you and stronger for the people around us. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for taking care of us like that and giving us a home and giving us a family and giving us all blessings, Lord. Help us to, to walk away from tonight, Lord, encouraged and challenged by the words that have were spoken by the ministers up here with me tonight, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to do this again. We pray all this in your son's name.